My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Gavin Kilduff is a professor at New York University's Stern School of Business. Gavin researches status dynamics in groups and how individuals can achieve status and influence. He also teaches classes on collaboration, conflict, consensus building, and negotiation. Gavin earned an undergraduate degree in computer science from Penn State and a PhD in business administration from Berkeley. I hope you enjoy learning from Gavin Kilduff today, because I always do. Gavin, it's so great to be able to chat today. Several years ago, I interviewed for a postdoc position at NYU. I spent the day out at Stern with you and your colleagues, and I've always wondered what life would have been like had I been able to work at NYU, such an amazing city with amazing colleagues. Regardless, uh, I'm happy to be able to chat with you again today, so thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, Nate, my my pleasure. It's It's a real pleasure to reconnect, and I appreciate you having me on. Well, as you think back on your research, Gavin, what you've done in the past, what you're currently working on, are there any simple, practical, underappreciated lessons you've learned that you'd most like to pass along to others? Uh, absolutely. Um, so I've been spent the past few days thinking a little bit about this. Um, I guess I would start with the uh, the importance of trying to get yourself into a flow state. Um, regardless of your line of work, we live in the most distractible time in, in human history. And um, I'm a big fan of uh, Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, which really transformed the way I think about, about how to work. And the basic principles are to, if you can even just get like two hours of focus time in the day where you turn off all your notifications, you really focus and, and, and you get deep into whatever it is that you're doing, not only will, will you be more productive, but it just feels really good and rewarding. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I recommend that book for, for more details in terms of techniques and habits and practices you can do to cultivate this focus. Uh, for me, that more recently that has actually involved like going to the library, you know, I've got an office here, of course, I'm a professor, but um, sometimes if I really want to get into flow, uh, I will just go into the library, sit down next to the students who are all focused on studying. It's quiet. Everyone's in the zone. And, and it's that environment that really gets me there. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I went to the law school before doing my PhD, and they uh, I was at Stanford. They've got this beautiful law building, tiny library that just had like such a great atmosphere. And there was that moment every day when I would get to the library with my books and I would just sit down and it was quiet and peaceful. And I knew that I was going to have, you know, two hours of just like flow. And I've gotten a little bit away from that. How did yeah. you come across Cal Newport's work and how long have you been trying to implement this? Uh, you know, it's been three or four years. A, a friend of mine who's a professor in a totally different area um, in like climate policy and justice uh, recommended it to me. And um, it's pretty remarkable. He, he reviews a number of kind of the most famous thinkers throughout history. And many of them had extraordinary routines and habits to cultivate deep work. So. I think one example was J.K. Rowling, like moved out of her house and 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 got a hotel room uh, and just stayed in there, like a total change of scenery to try to finish the last Harry Potter book, just as one example. And so, one thing that I have not yet done, but has really tempted me, is to is to book a train ride somewhere, 
and then just like come back and work the whole way because I, I work so well on the train. It's, it's just this change of scenery. None of the normal distractions are there. And, uh, and, and I, I just don't, I, I feel like I can keep going without, without every 20 or 30 minutes feeling the urge to do something else. Yeah, really interesting, especially in the age of cell phones where, you know, we're so distractible and we have these most amazing computers that have access to all of the world's collective knowledge since time began, you know, at our fingertips. So uh, we're in stiff competition to, you know, be able to focus on the things at hand. Uh, I do love, you know, this just makes me think it's a little bit of a tangent, but the one thing that gets me into flow, well, there's a couple of things that get me into flow, um, but one of them is when I put on my headphones at my gaming PC, I'm instantly in flow. And I think part of it is because, you know, it's the noise cancellation. And so you're just focused. But if you're working at the office or at home and there's the noise and the phone, and the notifications, of course, that pulls you out of flow. Well, I really look forward to checking out Cal Newport's book. I'm going to uh, really see if I can can tap into this. Um, any other lessons you'd like to pass on today? Yeah, absolutely. So number two is, I guess, somewhat connected to flow. Um, I'm, I'm really excited because I've been starting a whole new program of research with a doctoral student here, uh, Ye Jin Park, on the topic of play. And so there's obviously existing work on play between children, but we're interested in play between adults. And there's very little research on that. But what there is suggests, it really paints a picture of play as a critical part of our lives and as something that can have all kinds of benefits. And so the area in which it seems to have been most studied is for innovation and creativity. You know, there's famous company IDOs, this design firm uh, in Palo Alto. They created an incredibly, incredibly playful culture at work to try to generate more ideas. And it seems like much of Silicon Valley and tech is and many, many, there are many examples of companies who have at least taken pieces of that and tried to cultivate some play at work. But we're, you know, we're, our thinking is that it, it goes way beyond just creativity and innovation and that um, getting silly, getting playful can be an incredibly rewarding experience that can build strong bonds with other people, can be uh, really restorative psychologically in terms of uh, a break, uh, a real break from your stresses and, and daily routines and responsibilities, um, and could also be something that can generate a really great dynamic in a group uh, for productivity, even besides um, just creativity. Uh, so, you know, as far as that goes in my own life, I, I'm, I'm, I try to do things like take an improv class or go play spike ball in the park or have a game night, just things that really take, almost transport you into another world where the, your normal roles and responsibilities are set aside and you live in, in like in a little bit of a fantasy world and you get a complete break and you, you, you experience a new way of thinking. Are you trying to do this like during the day, at night, weekends? Like, how do you try to fit this into your schedule? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not It's not all that routinized yet. It's not like my morning, you know, at the library. Um, it's a little bit more uh, opportunistic. Mm -hmm. But on the weekends, definitely. Um, I'll always make time for something that's uh, that's playful. I've, I've started playing basketball again recently, and that's been amazing. Um, but also just getting together with friends and and trying to um, embody a, a less serious and more silly um, sort of a personality and 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 a way of being. So this reminds me of a, a number of things. Uh, first, I was listening to some researchers who research happiness and laughter, and one of their findings is that uh, one of people's largest or biggest regrets 
as they get older is that they don't laugh like they used to. Right. So just laughing is something, you know, I've got a three-year-old daughter and you know, it's just like, everything makes her laugh. And, you know, we, we get older and we just get boring and serious. And and so I guess one of the ways to not be so boring is to do cool stuff and, and do fun stuff. I was literally yesterday in my leadership class, we were talking about creativity and uh, doing a little case study on IDEO and how they embrace kind of this playful culture. And it also made me think of uh, Amos Tversky. Uh, he's got this famous line, you know, where he says that you waste years if you're not willing to waste hours. And so this idea of like taking a break to generate new ideas and uh, be able to get new perspective, I, th I thought it was a really powerful idea. Uh, it, it, we can be so focused on working hard that we forget to just enjoy it and and then do these playful things to get new perspectives as well. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, you know, there was an article I just came across a few days ago about Tropicana, the company of all people, um, initiating this huge uh, push towards getting adults to have more fun. And the data that they that they cited in the article was that most people around the age of 27 report that they no longer have fun in their lives. And it's like the number one thing that they missed from their childhood. Um, that's really sad, you know, by 27. And then yeah. and then if you think about that, there's actually really compelling research on the health implications of this. So Ellen Langer is a really famous psychologist, and she yeah. did this study where she she brought uh, she took these 70 to 80 year old men out to like a retreat and said, we want you to behave as if you are 20 years younger than you actually are. And then after five days, they collected all kinds of biological markers and they had improved in like flexibility and, and measures of like uh, blood pressure and all kinds of other like physical health indicators. It wasn't just a psychological effect. And so I think if we act young, we we will actually be younger and stave off aging more. Well, what a great research program for you. I look forward to following this research and, and watching you uh, continue to develop this and, and learning more from you. Uh, before we wrap up, any final lessons you'd like to share? Sure. I guess I'll share one more that is uh, like a little bit more mainstream organizational, and it also comes from some research of mine. Um, uh, with, a, with a former doctoral student, CUU, who's uh, now moving to uh, Michigan Ross School of Business, um, we explored uh, what you could call status intelligence, and it's uh, it's the idea that um, being able to perceive sort of the informal status dynamics at work and in your groups and your teams can be really important to success. And so, obviously, we all know who the boss is if there's a formal um, sort of a hierarchy in an organization, but um, there's all kinds of status dynamics, as many other researchers have showed, that are not um, attached to formal labels. And so... Um, what we've explored is how accurately people can actually perceive. Let's say if there's a group of people who are all equals um, in terms of their role and rank, uh, how accurately can people watch that group interact or, or be part of that group and then see who is most respected, admired, and influential and relatively less so uh, within the group? And what we find is that this, you could think of this as kind of like the next um, phase of emotional intelligence but it's actually not very highly correlated with our ability to just read uh, people's emotions from their facial expressions. Um, so it's something, it appears to be something new that's more focused on group interaction. Uh, and it, what we find is that having an accurate sense of these relative status differences in your groups and teams is really important to predicting your, your success at work because you can, you know, you know who to go to for advice or choose as a mentor uh, uh, and things of that nature. 
So this is really interesting. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend of mine just a couple months ago. And he was talking about one of his friends who's a business executive, owns an MBA franchise, and is just a, a brilliant kind of leader, manager. And one thing he said to me is, is this, this executive can walk into a room and the words he used was he can instantly identify the most important person in the room and just start kind of working them over, you know, or at least wow. connecting with them. Now that language isn't, you know, the language maybe the psychologist would use and in terms of like most important, you know, yeah, I think as humans, we're all important, but if you're trying to get something done in a business meeting, understanding who holds the status and who the decision maker is, is this, so now I have a new term for it, this, the status acuity, right? Like this ability yep. to identify uh, who has the status and, uh, how, how do the, have you got any insight in like how people do this or what markers there are, or, uh, where is this research taking you now? Yeah, great question. So that is, that is to be, to be determined really. Um, there is some existing work, as you know, on like indicators of status. And so it's partly, it partly depends on culture, but at least in a Western culture, things like speaking time, um, and like how loud you're speaking are, are examples, but we think it goes beyond that in looking at how people interact. So for example, if someone's speaking, is everyone like looking intently and paying close attention or are they kind of distracted or doing something else? And then um, if you're offering a suggestion, are you looking to one person for immediate, like their immediate reaction, their approval? So those are key, those are like dyadic or group level cues as to who everyone seems to be paying attention to. And, you know, what we find is some people are really good at this and some people are not so good. And so one question is, you know, what do you do if you're not that good at it? And and by the way, we have a test that actually can assess how good you are at this. Oh wow! Um, but so, you know, if you if you know from experience, or you happen to take this test and you realize that this is not one of my biggest strengths, um, it's not that hard to go around and ask people like, you know, who do you really respect and admire? Who do you look up to around here? Who do you go to if you have a question on this particular topic? And so that's kind of a practical like to do in terms of mapping out the the status dynamics in your team or your organization. Yeah, really interesting point. Like if, if naturally you don't just like have this sixth sense for how to do this, you can always just ask for help and guidance and then just being more conscious, more aware of like, you know, who do people really pay attention to and who don't they? That's right. Yeah. Well, Gavin, this is awesome. I, I love these lessons. As you know, the theme for this podcast is simple, practical, underappreciated. Uh, I look forward to trying to figure out how to get into more deep work every day, trying to have fun. And then this work on status acuity is also really interesting. So just really appreciate you sharing these lessons and spending your time with me today. It was my pleasure, Nate. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. Gavin Kilduff is an excellent researcher and teacher, and I love the lessons he shared today. First, to be productive in the most distractible time in human history, aim for at least two hours of deep focus per day. Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, transformed the way Gavin thinks about this. For Gavin, getting into deep focus involves going to the library and sitting next to the students who are studying and in the zone. I just ordered Cal Newport's book today, and I can't wait to read it. Second, to be happy and healthy, connected with others, and even more productive, make sure you play. For Gavin, that includes doing something where, quote, your normal roles and responsibilities are set aside and you live in a little bit of a fantasy world and you get a complete break. Data suggests that by age 27, most people stop having fun in their lives and fun is the number one thing that people miss from their childhood. But by acting younger than we are, we can improve both our physical and psychological health. 
Third, being able to perceive the informal status dynamics in groups and teams can be important to success. By paying attention to who people look to for approval, how loudly people speak, and who people defer to, we can improve our status intelligence. And if that fails, we can also just ask people for their perception of who the status leaders are. In summary, deep focus and play will help us be happier, healthier, and more productive, and being aware of status cues can help us be more successful. All simple ideas, please take them seriously. Nate Mickle here with three quick requests. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. And finally, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. Thanks for your support.